the Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings, and welcome to today's virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California, featuring Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and journalist Kai Bird, discussing his new book, The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. I'm Mary Bitterman, past chair of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors and president of the Bernard Osher Foundation. I'm very pleased that this program, which is part of the club's Good Lit series, is underwritten by the Osher Foundation. We do appreciate your considering a donation to support the work of the club. And if you wish to do so, please click on the blue donate button at the top of the YouTube chat box or visit the club's website at commonwealthclub.org. We also remind you to submit questions via the chat room next to your screen, and our moderator will cover as many of them as possible later in the program. It is now my pleasure to introduce our eminent speaker, Kai Bird, Executive Director and Distinguished Lecturer at the City University of New York, Leon Levy Center for Biography. Mr. Bird was awarded the Pulitzer Prize in Biography for American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. His other contributions include critical writings on the Vietnam War, Hiroshima, nuclear weapons, the Cold War, the Arab-Israeli conflict, and the CIA. Mr. Bird's newest book is The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. This important work resonates in a personal and very special way with me, as I was privileged to serve as director of the Voice of America during the Carter administration. I was the youngest director and the first woman to hold the post. VOA at that time was attached to the U.S. Information Agency, and its director was my beloved colleague, the Honorable John E. Reinhardt, the first black U.S. ambassador to Nigeria and the first career diplomat to head the agency. President Carter selected many people who were firsts. The outlier is being acclaimed as a definitive account of Jimmy Carter's presidency, including how the president's often controversial policies and initiatives appear in historical perspective. President Carter assisted Mr. Byrd in his research, giving him exclusive access to the private papers and of his longtime personal lawyer and political advisor, as well as to the unpublished diaries of two White House aides. Mr. Byrd explains that as president, Jimmy Carter was not merely an outsider. He was an outlier. 
He was the only president in a century to grow up in the heart of the Deep South, and his born-again Christianity made him the most openly religious president in memory. Mr. Byrd describes this outlier as bringing to the White House a rare melange of humility, candor, and unnerving self-confidence that neither Washington nor America was ready to embrace. Mr. Byrd details how issues still hotly debated today, from growing economic inequality and racism to national health care and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, burned at the heart of Carter's America and consumed a president who felt a moral duty to solve them. Prepare yourselves for a fascinating discussion on Jimmy Carter's presidential legacy, which Mr. Byrd claims has been deeply misunderstood. Mr. Byrd will be in conversation with Dr. Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California. And now, please welcome Kai Bird and Gloria Duffy. Thank you so much, Mary. And uh, I join Mary in welcoming Kai Bird. Thank you so much for joining us at the Commonwealth Club. Well, thank you, Gloria. It's a real pleasure to be and here. Thank you for a very illuminating book about President Carter. It's a long time since you and I were graduate student interns in Washington in 1976. Uh, especially the chapters of your book on the 76 presidential race brought back for me the flavor and drama of that time as we watched the little-known governor of Georgia gain momentum and then capture the Democratic nomination for president at the July convention. It was a very exciting time. So um, could you elaborate on the title you gave the book, The Outlier?, what do you mean by outlier, uh, and in how throughout his life and career do you feel Jimmy Carter was an outlier? Well, I love the title. Uh, it's it's short and punchy, and I think it really describes Jimmy Carter very well. He's not just an outsider. Um, he's an outlier, which I think of as slightly different, uh, as exceptional, as um, I sort of, you know... It, the title came to me, I'll confess, from Malcolm Glad Gladwell's book on the outliers, which was an exploration of, of geniuses and exceptionally uh, productive people um, who were outliers from the usual pack. And, and that describes Carter. You know, he came from the Deep South. He came from South Georgia, grew up. Uh, uh, in a tiny little village hamlet, really, called Archery, that with no running water, an outhouse in the backyard, uh, no electricity until he was a teenager. And his, uh, his father was a white Southern man who believed in white supremacy. And he owns several thousand acres of land that he lent out to sharecroppers and tenant farmers. And so young Jimmy grew up with all of his playmates were virtually African-Americans. Uh, so he had a very unusual uh, upbringing. And despite his father's racism, Jimmy sort of seems to have not been that ever. Didn't have a racist, prejudiced bone in his body. And... Uh, the explanation clearly comes from his mother, the funny and well, 
an outspoken Miss Lillian, who some of us may remember from her appearances on the Johnny Carson show or such, where she would entertain uh, the country with her one-liners and her wit and her blunt-spoken style. And she was, uh, you know, she came from this sort of other Southern tradition of eccentric Southern women who could be outliers, could be, uh, uh, could break all the social taboos and could say what they thought. And they were considered sort of eccentrics. Um, and, uh, but they were tolerated. And so was Miss Lillian. And I think young Jimmy got his ethics, his sense of, uh, equality of the, of the races, um, from from his mother, Miss Lillian. And he was an outlier in many other ways. He was just, he was a smart young boy who was very ambitious. And uh, he was always, even, even as president, he, you know, I think quietly thought that he was the smartest guy in the room. And he often was. <laughs> so didn't, you were talking about his being an outlier as a, white kid in the South surrounded by African-American playmates. Didn't he also in his life, uh, wasn't there someone who had a mixed race communal farm uh, that had a pretty big impact on him that he, uh, an experiment that he watched and, and uh, was tuned into as, as a young man. Yes. I'm glad you picked up on that little part of the story. Uh, Clarence Jordan, was actually the uncle of Hamilton Jordan, who became Jimmy Carter's chief of staff and was his young, brilliant political operative who wrote the famous memo in 1974 that laid out the path for how Jimmy Carter could win the nomination and, and the presidency. And Hamilton Jordan's uh, uncle was Clarence, and he was sort of a black sheep of the family. And seven miles down the road from Plains, he founded in 1942 a interracial commune uh, called Koinonia. And it, it was a Christian, he was a you know good Southern, well, he wasn't a Southern Baptist, he was Methodist, I believe. But he, he was a conservative, um, born-again evangelical Christian with a radical social uh, liberal agenda. And he believed in the equality of the races. And in 1942, as I said, he founded this commune on a farm. And uh, it sort of existed under the radar for uh, about 10 years. And then when the Brown Supreme Court decision in 1954 desegregated schools and the South began to rise up in great agitation about uh, these the, the coming integration, Koinonia became a target of the Ku Klux Klan, of violence, dynamite attacks. And, you know, Jimmy Carter by this time was back in planes after having left the Navy after a seven-year career in the Navy as a submariner working under Admiral Rickover. And he had come back because his father had died in 1952. And uh, so he was a witness to what was going on down, down the road with Uncle Clarence. Um, and they were, they were acquaintances, friends, and Carter quietly broke the boycott. You know, he would sell him fertilizer and 
peanut seeds and and uh, such uh, from his peanut warehouse business. But he wasn't involved. He wasn't uh, active in the civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s, which is, you know, in retrospect, uh, it's it's significant. <laughs> but Clarence Thomas, uh, Clarence uh, Jordan was uh, an extraordinary man, and uh, he influenced Hamilton clearly, and uh, I think quietly influenced Carter. So uh, I was also struck by how his father was an entrepreneur. I mean, he started with a little, and he had a lot of schemes that he came up came up with, which put a financial base under the Carter family. Oh, absolutely. He was he was an entrepreneur. He, you know, he was a, a high school dropout. He finished tenth grade, I think. Um, uh, but he he was good at business and. You know, I tell the story in the book where Jimmy is sent out one day in a truck with some farm hands to try to sell tomatoes. They had a good crop of tomatoes that season, and he couldn't sell any of the tomatoes because everyone had had a good crop of tomatoes that that year. And so he comes home, and his father looks at the tomatoes and says, well, let's boil them up and make ketchup. And they bottled the ketchup and sold ketchup for a year. <laughs> so he, he, yeah, I just, I, I see how that sort of the uh, spark uh, and um, ability to try new things. You do really see that in Jimmy Carter's political life too. Uh, but we'll get, we'll get to that a bit later. Can you talk a little bit about his jump into politics? Uh, when you say that he wasn't uh, involved in the civil rights movement, he really had to cater to a wide variety of political views and attitudes uh, to get into politics in Georgia. Yes. Well, he, he kept under the radar throughout the 50s. He wasn't involved in any of the civil rights protest movements, um, but he was a a quiet liberal, and in 1962, he surprised his wife, Rosie, Rosalind Carter, by coming uh, into the living room one day dressed in his Sunday best, and she says, where are you off to? <laughs> and he said, well, I've decided I'm going to run for the state senate. Um, yeah, he didn't even consult her. He just made the decision, and he, he ran, and three weeks later, uh, lost, apparently, and uh, it turns out the uh, ballot box was stuffed in one of the critical counties. And uh, Carter, being the relentless man that he was, uh, hired a lawyer named Charlie Kerbo to investigate what had happened. And Kerbo was able to find the ballot box in question and open it before a judge and prove that it had been stuffed with ballots wrapped up in rubber bands. <laughs> it was, uh, And so he got into the state Senate. But, you know, he... He uh, he was always a liberal, but he was always Machiavellian in his politics. He he uh, he knew he had to walk through this minefield of race and populist Southern politics, and uh, he was very careful. Um, and he you know. A few years later in 66, he ran for governor and lost because he was perceived as too liberal. He was determined to run again. And in 1970, he was extremely cautious and 
ran a campaign that appealed to rural white voters, while at the same time he went and campaigned inside black churches. Um, and he, you know, he engaged in a few dog whistles. He walked right up to the line trying to explain to conservative, racist Georgia voters that he was, he understood their concerns. Um, but he never crossed the line, I would argue. And he got elected in 1970 to the governorship, which was then a one-term, four-year governorship. And so then he immediately began running for the presidency. (laughs) It was an extraordinary story. And uh, as you said, he was a man filled with self-confidence. And um, so he, he pursued, he knew how to pursue power relentlessly. Um, and yet, when he became governor in 1970, he made a statement about uh, the time for racial discrimination being over in Georgia. So he he did become uh, public and, and outright uh, about his opposition to racism. Absolutely, no. He shocked the the audience on on the inauguration stand the first day he's in office with his speech in which he made this stunning announcement that the time for segregation in the South is over. And uh, there literally, there were gasps in the audience. Uh, it was such a shocker. But this too was a very calculated step because as I pointed out, he couldn't run for, re- for governor, the governorship a second term. So he knew he needed to move to the left and to appeal to a national audience in in 1970 meant to that he had to become a little you know show his liberal feathers uh, which he did so he grew up in this small town he went off to the naval academy he went into the navy came back when his father died to run the family business this this is a question about you know throughout his life what drove jimmy carter what values what motivations drove him into public life well, I, I have to say that, you know, this was this was a mystery. And I initially, when I first thought of doing a Jimmy Carter biography, it was 1990. And uh, it was after I just about finished my first book. And I explored the notion by going down to Atlanta and uh, writing a magazine article about what he was doing with his ex-presidency. And you know, I published the piece. It was a nice little essay about all the good works that he was doing uh, abroad and, and at home. and uh, But I decided that I didn't understand the South. It seemed like a foreign country. And I didn't understand Southern Baptists and his religiosity. Um, and it, But I was always curious about it. So I backed off on the project and then came back to it in 2015. And the deeper I got into the research, I mean, I think to answer your question, it was his religion, his values that always drove him. That and his ambition. And the problem he had was to try to, you know, meld the two into a a marriage that worked because he as a Southern Baptist knew that the worst sin for a Southern Baptist was pride. And boy, did he have pride in his intelligence and his abilities. (laughs) So how do you... How do you square that that circle? Uh, 
The way he did it was to say that I will do as Reinhold Niebuhr argues, and he was very much influenced by some of the writings of Reinhold Niebuhr, which is ironic because uh, Reinhold Niebuhr is, is a theologian we associate with uh, the East Coast establishment, uh, certainly no Southern Baptist. But uh, I, I write in the book that I think that Carter became a a Niburian Southern Baptist, really a church of one. <laughs> um, anyway, Niebuhr argued that, you know, we live in a sinful world, which Carter could empathize with and understand from his biblical studies. And in a sinful world, you have to, you know, you have to fix it. You have to do good works. And, uh, and you have to, to be able to fix it, you have to have power. And so politicians, their duty is to achieve power and then do good. And so this is how Carter, in his mind, has always um, squared the circle of his ambition and his religiosity. So as he moved on and up from governor to run for higher office <clears throat> and, it, you know, into the governor's mansion, he took with them the Georgia boys. There's this whole group. You mentioned Hamilton Jordan. There was a whole group of them, Charlie Kerbo, who found the stuffed ballot box. Can you say a little bit about that group and remind us about how they moved with them? Were they a good influence, good support, bad influence, bad support? Right. Well, every president, you know, comes to the White House with his his inner circle. And Jimmy Carter's was the Georgia boys, as loosely described. Um, and that included Hamilton Jordan, who was like all of 33. And uh, uh, Landon Butler, who was a, a smart businessman and environmentalist. Uh, and Jody Powell, who was his sort of his press secretary, but uh, sort of a, uh, he, Jody looked up to him as a father figure. He was also only like 31. Um, and this small circle, Charlie Kerbo, who refused to, he was offered the chief of staff by Carter. He was the only man offered that position and Kerbo turned it down. He didn't want to move to Washington, so instead he would come up to Washington every few weeks and spend a few days and quietly sit in the back of meetings and, and then go to Carter and tell him what he thought. Um, and these these people were uh, ethically clean. They were very young, but they were actually quite bright, and yet they were portrayed in, particularly by the Washington Post and the style section and Sally Quinn, who's a, a terrific writer of uh, society gossip and, and uh, style section kind of essays. She went after Hamilton Jordan in particular and Jody Powell relentlessly, portraying them as you know, so Southern country bumpkins, hayseeds, um, boorish. Uh, you know, Hamilton Jordan did walk around in khakis in the White House, and sometimes he wore work boots into the Oval Office, and this was scandalous, apparently, to the Georgetown crowd. <laughs> um, but they were actually quite smart and clever, and Jody Powell in particular was, I think, in retrospect, he, 
is certainly one of the better press secretaries we've had in the 20th century. Um, he never, he always managed to make a joke. He could play the reporters in the press room like a violin. Uh, he never had to lie except once with regard to whether or not Carter was in, about to launch a rescue mission for the Iran ho hostages. Um, but he would always, you know, wink and when he had to uh, exaggerate or couldn't answer the question. And the reporters loved him because they knew they were getting uh, an honest briefing, um, which is uh, actually a rarity these days. <laughs> uh, anyway, they were, they were a, a good crowd, but they got into a lot of trouble and um, with the press in particular. And this was part of Carter's political problems as he went through his first and only term in office. From uh, the other person, of course, who came with him from Georgia all the way to today is Rosalind. And one of our audience would like to know about her, uh, more about her. Can you discuss Jimmy's relationship with Rosalind Carter, how she ranks in the pantheon of first ladies? We haven't gotten to the presidency yet, but just your thoughts about her. Well, she she's an amazing personality in that, you know, she never finished college. She married Jimmy when she was, what, 19. Um, she was extremely shy. She too grew up in Plains. Um, and when he entered politics in 1962 and she had to begun, begin to sort of go on the campaign trail and give the occasional speech, she got nause nauseous to her stomach, just the thought of standing in front of a crowd of people. But she got good at it. And uh, she was very authentic. And um, by the time Carter was in the Oval Office, she, he was beginning to send her out regularly to go on Meet the Press. And she was very effective. Um, she also is like Eleanor Roosevelt. She was interested in policy. And so very early in the presidency, she began to attend cabinet meetings, uh, not to talk, but she would sit in the back and take notes. And then she would go and grill her husband about this or that and why wasn't he working harder on this policy. <laughs> and she actually had, unlike Carter, she had a, a more sensitive political nose. She knew the political costs of some of his um, decisions and she was very attuned to that and kept nagging him to maybe put off some of the tougher decisions like the Panama Canal Treaty, which he decided to tackle early in his administration, which he knew was going to be a tough thing to pass in the Senate. Uh, and indeed, so seven of the senators who voted for that treaty lost their next election. Um, so Rosie kept telling him, you know, Jimmy, don't you want to be reelected? And he kept responding, well, I, I don't have time. I have to, this issue requires my action now. I can't postpone peace in the Middle East. I can't postpone the Panama Canal Treaty. Um, anyway, she was very smart. And, you know, when they left the White House, uh, they both wrote memoirs. Hers came out first and was actually a national bestseller. <laughs> And uh, I think it came out first. Maybe it came, maybe he, maybe maybe hers was the second. But anyway, 
she outsold Jimmy's memoir, and it's a better written book in many ways and more personal based on her diaries. And turns out she was a good writer too. So she was an astonishing first lady. Partners all the way through through life. So, um, as governor of Georgia, one or two things that really strike you about what he accomplished, challenges he faced. Well, he was navigating race in, in Georgia as governor, um, and simultaneously trying to position himself for a, a national run for the presidency. Um, but Carter, you know, took. He governed like an engineer, and he did this in the White House, too. He paid a lot of attention to details. He uh, got into it. He, he was a fan of zero-based budgeting. <laughs> he made that a big thing during his governorship, and he tried to streamline the bureaucracy. You know, he was a small-town fiscal conservative, um, given his background as, as an agribusinessman and farmer, uh, he wanted to balance the budget. Um, and he, I criticize him in the book for not understanding Keynes and the value of federal deficit spending if it was wisely done on good projects. But um, he also, I think, mistakenly thought that the federal deficit contributed to inflation when it was actually commodity prices, the price. The, price of oil that was going up because of the Iran revolution or the Arab oil boycott. But so as governor, he, he focused on streamlining the bureaucracy, cutting government. Um, and he sort of governed both as governor and later in his presidency, like a sort of Teddy Roosevelt progressive Republican, a good government um, uh, Republican who wanted to make things work. So, when early in his presidency, he was asked to, in a crucial meeting in the spring of 77 to uh, uh, reform the food stamp program. And initially he was opposed to it because he thought, oh, this is going to cost a lot of money. Um, and he didn't want to spend a lot of money. But when someone told him, well, you know, if you can just change the one, this one rule uh, that requires any food, new food stamp recipients to pay the first $80, an actual dollar payment, uh, that would in encourage, if you waived that rule, that would encourage many more people to take advantage of this government program that was helping particularly the poor and children to get nutrition. And so Carter was impressed by that. He thought that was a simple bureaucratic reform, and he did it, and three million new people came on to, you know, started using food stamps. Uh, and most of those people, by the way, were African Americans in the South. So then he runs for president and uh, gets elected. And, and what, what what is the significance? Uh, you mentioned at the beginning, the significance, or Mary Bitterman did, I think, of <clears throat> a Southern uh, president, uh, especially coming, you know, with this large group of other Southerners into the White House. What is the historical significance of that? Well, it was remarkable. This was a guy who came from nowhere. No one had heard of him. Uh, you know, 
most Americans hadn't known him as a governor of Georgia. He was a most improbable candidate, but he was lucky. In 1976, this was his moment. Ted Kennedy, the, who led the liberal wing of the Democratic Party, had decided not to run. The crowd, a crowd of candidates became very crowded. Uh, uh, and he managed to sort of run as on, on his own integrity. He ran on himself, not really on issues per se. He had, you know, some liberal issues that he was in, some conservative issues that he was in favor of. Uh, but he emphasized that in the aftermath of Watergate and the Vietnam War, and, you know, that he would never lie to the American people, that he was untouched by Washington. He was running against Washington. And uh, it was a brilliant campaign, and it succeeded. And uh, he won, you know, the votes of Southerners and uh, African-Americans, white Southerners, but also African-Americans. He won the evangelical vote. He won the Jewish-American vote by 72%. Um, he won union household vote by a majority. Uh, it was a great campaign. And yet four years later, he lost all of those constituencies. It's remarkable. He, as the first Southern president from the Deep South, you know, you can't count Andrew Jackson because he wasn't really from the Deep South. He was from one of those border states. <laughs> um, you know, Carter was the first Southern president. And it was the, you know, he lost the election, but it was extraordinary that his own constituency, the South, turned on him. And part of the reason was his liberal stance on race. Um, he appointed more African-American and Hispanic and women to the federal bench than all his predecessors before him, remaking the whole federal uh, bench, judiciary. And, you know, he... He targeted his federal budget to help poor people, um, and yet he lost the South, and he lost evangelicals. Well, why evangelicals? Because he insisted on a separation of church and state. He would not give tax-exempt status to all these Christian white academies that were popping up in the South at the time to evade integration of the public schools. And uh, this outraged uh, evangelicals, white evangelicals in the South who didn't want their kids to sit next to black kids. Uh, it was, you know, it, he was touching the third rail of American history, race. And uh, it was politically very costly. So as his administration unfolded, um, Let's talk a little bit about the energy crisis, conservation, as we sit now and from the perspective of climate change and the fires and the heat and everything going on right now, how does his focus on energy conservation look? Well, at the time, he bored many Americans with many speeches about energy. <laughs> and of course, there was an energy crisis that was caused by, as I alluded to, the Iranian Revolution and the Arab oil boycott and OPEC. But these were temporary um, 
sort of market shortages that the oil companies took advantage of to increase prices. And indeed, you know, Americans were shocked that they were having to pay a dollar a gallon for gasoline. And there were long gasoline lines in, 19, in the summer of 1979. Um, but Carter, you know, also got into trouble by trying to talk to the American people like a minister, like a preacher, uh, about their values. So famously, he gave this malaise speech in the middle of the energy crisis in the summer of 79, uh, where it was partly an energy speech about conservation, the need for sacrifice, and the need, not, you know, Americans shouldn't drive as much. But it was also a sermon about our limits, the limits of American exceptionalism, the limits of what we could do to exploit our environment the limits of our, our material desires. He said, you know, you Americans, we cannot, we cannot seek happiness only from material goods. And he went up against the notion of the individual as opposed to uh, the values of community. And this was regarded as sort of an astonishing speech from a president. It sounded more like a sermon. And it was kind of, you know, un-American in the view of many people to talk about the limits. Well, uh, you know, a year later, he finds himself running against Ronald Reagan, who is campaigning on the notion of America being a, a shining city on a hill, of America being exceptional, of America being able to do anything anywhere, anywhere in the world and that there are no limits. Well, that was a, 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 you know, an old political theme in American politics. And Carter's theme was extremely unusual. And, but nowadays, it seems pretty prescient. <laughs> you know, he's, he was the first president, he didn't use the word climate change, but he talked about damage to the environment and the air oceans, and uh, he issued a report that was talking about climate change right at the end of his presidency. Uh, and, you know, he, he was dealing with tough issues that were other politicians wanted to take off the table. Well, and there was all the symbolism, solar panels on the White House, uh, setting the thermostat lower. He set up the Solar Energy Research Institute. Uh, so, you know, he was looking ahead to the, the trends that have become so dominant now. He also, you know, in the energy field, he deregulated natural gas in a terrible political fight, particularly in the Senate. Um, and it took decades, but this deregulation of natural gas production eventually led to what we have now as sort of domestic energy independence uh, through fracking. Um, no, he, he, was, uh, he was very prophetic in many ways, um, particularly in the field of environment. But also, you know, he, he uh, while many liberals, Ted Kennedy liberals might scratch their heads and and wonder just how liberal he was. He, Carter did uh, appoint to high 
regulatory office, all sorts of Ralph Naderite acolytes who were uh, great consumer advocates. And so, you know, he had appointed Joan Claybrook, for instance, uh, an associate of Nader's, um, to work on auto safety standards. And uh, under his administration, they got seatbelts mandated by the, you know, the auto companies had to build cars with seatbelts and airbags. And they fought this bitterly. In fact, the auto labor unions fought it too, thinking it might hurt their jobs. Um, but they pushed it through and, uh, you know, that alone probably saved nine to 10,000 lives every year since then. So it's, it's, an, it's an amazing record and it leads you to under, wonder why most Americans think that he was an ineffective president because he actually passed a lot of legislation and got a lot done. Hence your subtitle, The Unfinished Presidency. I mean, there was so much that he initiated or accomplished. Uh, there, and there's a lot more we could talk about, about his agenda and what happened domestically. But it was sort of over foreign policy, really, that things unraveled for him. And um, let's kind of go back to the beginning. He appointed some people in his foreign policy team who didn't exactly agree or didn't have similar philosophies. And uh, could you talk a little bit about that group? Was it a team of rivals? Was it people who had completely incompatible agendas and worldviews? Well, uh, I tell the story in the book during the transition after he had won the presidency, but before he'd been inaugurated, he had a conversation with Richard Holbrook on the phone. Holbrook had been one of his uh, foreign policy advisors during the campaign. And Carter told him that he was thinking of appointing Zbigniew Brzezinski as national security advisor and Cy Vance as secretary of state. And Holbrook apparently bluntly told him, well, you can have one or the other, but Mr. President, you really, President-elect, you really shouldn't um, have both of them because they have two completely different worldviews and their sensibilities are different and they won't work well together. And what he meant was that Brzezinski wouldn't work well with Cy Vance and that he would be like Henry Kissinger, a, uh, a, a rogue elephant in the, in the foreign policy apparatus. And Carter hung up, you know, cut short that phone conversation because he was determined to have both. And he told Holbrook, actually, that he, he thought he could handle it. Sort of like maybe in the, the thinking of a team of rivals like Lincoln's cabinet, he wanted to be exposed to argument, and and this is true. He he got along with Brzezinski, and this is one of the mysteries in my narrative. I I, <laughs> I just couldn't figure it out. How could he tolerate Zbig, as he was known around the White House, um, when almost every day Brzezinski would come to him with uh, a whole lot of ideas, and Carter would have to object and knock down almost all of them. They argued continually. They disagreed with their worldview. Brzezinski was basically a Cold War hawk who thought of foreign policy only in terms of America's position with regard to the Soviet Union. And he thought that the, the rivalry between the Soviet Union and, and America was... Uh, 
a generational conflict and that it was going to go on for a long time and that the Soviets were aggressive and a large threat. Carter, you know, actually didn't believe any of that. Uh, he saw the Soviets as uh, a weak enemy, a weak adversary. And in one of his first foreign policy speeches, he announced that spring of 77 that the time for our inordinate fear of communism was over, a time where we would you know, defend any right-wing dictator because they were enemies of the communists. Uh, that would, you know, that would, that was no longer a persuasive argument to him. And this was, you know, a, so there was a fundamental difference. And Cy Vance had a worldview that was much closer to Carter's. And Carter took his advice invariably for the first three years. And then until Afghanistan happened. <laughs> and so again, you know, I was working for Zbig at the time uh, Carter was running for president. And I think they connected, uh, and, I, and I was helping to support a group of advisors uh, that Zbig was running through Columbia University, um, advising Jimmy Carter on foreign policy. And I think the meeting of the minds was about human rights and values, uh, with Zbig having been uh, exiled from Poland with his family by the communist takeover. And, uh, you know, his, his uh, concern was for people who were uh, disenfranchised by the communists uh, throughout the Eastern Bloc and so on. So I kind of think that's where they met, uh, not so much on the ground of foreign policy acts and, and actions uh, and, or foreign policy. Just throwing that into the, the, the conversation. Um, so, so then, yes, we had uh, the Shah of Iran. We had uh, the invasion of Afghanistan. We had the Soviet combat brigade in Cuba. All of these, how, how did all of these events line up in sequence to finally unravel the Carter presidency, essentially? Well, it, it, it's, a, it's a Shakespearean story. It's a tragedy. Um, and Carter became sort of a, in the foreign policy field, sometimes a victim of historical events that were really way beyond his control. Now, in the Middle East, you know, he very early on tackled this very difficult, thorny subject of Arab-Israeli peace. And he did it relentlessly over the, you know, against the advice of all his advisors. Even Vance was opposed to this because he understood how difficult um, such negotiations would be. Um, but C Carter was relentless and he achieved Camp David. The Camp David Accords negotiated over 13 momentous days in September of 1978 were extraordinary. And it, it would not have happened without Jimmy Carter's personal diplomacy, shuttling back and forth literally between cabins and at Camp David. Um, and then he was relentless in, in forcing, lobbying the Israelis to agree to do what they had promised to do at Camp David and ultimately sign an, uh, an Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty. So this was an enormous triumph. And yet it had the seeds also of 
it's unraveling what of what we're facing today because Carter thought he had also gotten the Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin to agree to a five-year freeze on all settlements, Jewish settlements in the West Bank. And Carter fervently believes to this day that Begin somehow either lied to him or deceived him. And he thought that this was an essential part of the whole negotiation, that you had to give the Palestinian uh, aspirations for some kind of self-determination uh, a grounding. And they were talking about autonomy and such. But Begin was relentless, too, and, and uh, it, it eventually led to uh, well, the number of settlements in the in the West Bank have grown from like 25,000 when Carter left office to now over 700,000, and it's closing the door to a two-state solution. So this was, you know, a great achievement to take Egypt off the battlefield for Israel, but it the conflict continues, and there's no resolution. Uh, next comes inevitably the Iran Iranian Revolution. And Carter, I argue in the book, unlike some historians who have said, well, he could have saved the Shah, I think the Iranian revolution was organic, emerging on the ground. There was nothing that Carter could have done to save the Shah. The revolution happened, and there was some hope that perhaps Ayatollah Khomeini would be merely a spiritual figurehead, um, and that the old National Front leaders would actually run the government and it would emerge into a democracy. This, too, was uh, fated not to happen, and it became a theocratic dictatorship run by Khomeini. And he, <clears throat> um, you know, he used the, the, the specter of the exiled Shah as a uh, means to sort of consolidate his power and from the time that the revolution you know from the time that Khomeini came back to Iran in February of 79 to uh, later that year for 10 months Brzezinski and Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller and John McCloy lobbied Jimmy Carter and his administration relentlessly to give the Shah political asylum Carter said, no, no, no. <laughs> he wrote in his presidential diary, oh, I fear if I do this, this will inflame the streets of Tehran and you know, perhaps our embassy could be taken hostage. And uh, he was right. Well, he resisted this advice until finally Cy Vance himself changed his mind and came to the president and said, well, the Shah has cancer. We now have reports that he needs medical treatment that he can only get in New York. Well, that too was not accurate. He could have gotten medical treatment in any number of other places, but Carter was persuaded. He gave him his, uh, admittance to the country, and that sparked the taking of the hostages. And as we know, it lasted 444 days. But Carter did the toughest thing he could, which was not to use military force. He, Brzezinski argued with him to mine the harbors, to blockade the Persian Gulf, to do something to show that America was tough. And Carter feared that this would 
endanger the lives of the hostages. And so he, he relied on Cy Vance's advice that, you know, diplomacy would win out. They're, they're not going to keep these hostages forever. They'll have a political use for them. And when that political use is no longer there, they'll release them. And of course, Cy Vance was right, but it took 444 days and they weren't released until the day that Ronald Reagan was inaugurated president. <laughs> so it's a, just a political tragedy. And in this uh, period, it was Vig again, I think, who came up with the idea or promoted the idea of a rescue attempt uh, that went severely awry and again was part of the, the unraveling. No, that too is a very dramatic moment in the book where we actually have audio tapes of Carter monitoring the, the helicopter rescue mission. And you hear him you know, getting word that they've had to abort. Um, and he at first believes that everyone has gotten out safely. And then he's told oh, there was an accident and uh, a half dozen, well, seven or eight American lives were lost. And uh, yes, the, the helicopter rescue mission was something that the planning began for almost as soon as the hostages were taken and the meetings were chaired by Brzezinski. And he just, you know, was determined that there should be some kind of military option. And Carter was determined not to use military force. And yet, you know, there were so many times that diplomatic feelers, uh, Hamilton Jordan was sent in, in disguise, prepared for him by the CIA <laughs> with the glasses and a false mustache and uh, to negotiate in Paris in a Paris hotel with uh, two Frenchmen who had contacts inside the Iranian regime. And these negotiations, when they fell apart in March, Carter was reluctantly persuaded by Brzezinski to gamble on the helicopter res rescue mission. And I argue, looking at it today in retrospect, it, it, there were just too many moving parts. It was so complicated. It would only have succeeded if every moving part had worked perfectly. And this just, it, it, it was fated to be a failure, I argue. And even if they had gotten into Iran, into they got into Iran, but if they had actually gotten into the city of Tehran and uh, gotten close to the embassy, I, I'm persuaded that many, many lives would have been lost, Iranian, but probably some of the hostages as well. And that too would have been a terrible disaster. So, When Jimmy Carter did lose to Ronald Reagan, how devastated was he? Oh, he was very devastated. Uh, both he and Rosie, Rosalind Carter, were plunged into depression, particularly Rosalind. Um, you know, people re remember this election as a landslide, and it was in the Electoral College. Um, but up until about two weeks before the election, uh, Carter was coming back. He was within 5% in the polls, which was often within the margin of error. Um, and he was, you know, a man of extreme self-confidence. He believed he could beat back the challenge from Reagan. He also thought that Reagan was 
not <clears throat> not fit for office. He couldn't believe that uh, he was a serious candidate initially. Um, and he thought he was just too conservative for the country. But, you know, he, in fact, he was wrong about all of this. Uh, the Carter, Carter presidency was a sort of liberal window between Nixon and the Reagan revolution. And the country was much more conservative than we thought or that than Carter thought. Um, but yeah, he was, he was devastated by the loss. And then he had to return to Plains and his personal lawyer, Charlie Kerbo, had to sit down with him and explain that uh, the Carter peanut warehouse, which had been put into a blind trust, uh, was essentially bankrupt and he'd have to sell the business. Um, fortunately, within a few months, they found a buyer and they were able to um, pay off their debts and they, without selling any of the Carter ancestral farmland. Um, so they retired to Plains and, you know, Carter took up woodworking. He's a great carpenter. He makes his own furniture. <laughs> uh, he, uh, he had, during the presidency, he had become a, a long distance runner. Uh, he continued to run. He uh, had a swimming pool in his backyard and he often swam a mile a day. He was a great fly fisherman. You know, anything he took on, he excelled in. <laughs> it, was, it was extraordinary. So he excelled at, uh, at all this. And he finally decided that unlike um, some presidents who open a presidential museum and have a library for their archives, uh, he would, you know, do that. But he was going to establish something called the Carter Center that would continue give him the opportunity to continue the work of his unfinished presidency. And this started up seriously about 10 years after he left office and it exists today. And uh, I think most Americans, if they think of Jimmy Carter, they recognize him as a very decent and hardworking ex-president who has been a model for how a pres ex-president should conduct himself. You know, he's never, enriched himself. He doesn't charge millions of dollars for one speech to a group of foreign foreigners in Japan or Germany or whatnot. Uh, he has raised money for the Carter Center to try to wipe out guinea worm disease in Africa and try to bring peace to the Syrian civil war. And he's monitored over 50 elections around the world. You know, he's done good with his ex-presidency. I, I I think you referred to a cartoon where a kid uh, says, you know, Daddy, when I grow up, I'd like to be an ex-president. And uh, it just sort of encapsulates what what a successful ex-president he's been. So there was Guinea Worm. There were other health initiatives, um, all the conflict resolution work, um, and continuing to work with Habitat for Humanity and do hands-on work. Um, and then a major health challenge. Oh, he said, uh, you know, when I first signed the contract to write this book, it was in the summer of 2015. And a few weeks later, he uh, had a live press conference, which was broadcast by many of the cable networks. 
And it was an extraordinary performance. He walked on stage and calmly announced that his doctors had diagnosed him with not only liver cancer, but brain cancer, and that he probably had a few weeks to live. And uh, then he took some questions for 40 minutes, and <laughs> calmly talked about his life. Uh, and I thought to myself, well, I'll never get a chance to interview him. And uh, lo and behold, the FDA had six months earlier uh, uh, authorized uh, for approval this immune therapy for certain cancers. And it apparently worked a miracle in his cancer and the four spots of melona, melanoma that he had in his brain disappeared within months. And he's now cancer-free. But he is 96, going on 97. And uh, he's had several falls in, in the last 18 months. And he's, you know, declined quite a bit. He's no longer going out on turkey hunting shoots <laughs> uh, and, or fly fishing. And, but he's sitting at home in planes in the same house that, he's, that he built in 1960 very plain um, ranch house, four bedrooms. And, um, and he's, uh, he's a survivor. So is Rosalind. She's just turned 94. So. We're getting, unfortunately, towards the end of our time. I'd like to shift just to talk for a moment about your process. Uh, you know, you wrote your Pulitzer Prize winning uh biography. You're the head of a center on biography. Uh, now you've just published another biography. How has the process changed over the years and researching uh, for a biography, uh, particularly since the advent of the internet? Um, tell us a little bit about your process and what you what materials you had access to for this book. Yeah, no, the process that really has changed. Um, when I first started out, uh, in, in the 1980s, working on a biography of John McCloy, you know, it was a matter of going into the archives and Xeroxing at 25 cents a page archival documents and then filing them. On, and, uh, and you worked all from paper. Um, my Oppenheimer biography, you know, I had a co-author named Martin Sherwin and Marty and I are still great buddies. And, uh, Marty is, uh, when he started that book, it was in 1980, and he accumulated over 50,000 pages of archival documents from everything from the FBI to various presidential archives to the National Archives to foreign archives. And, and uh, when he brought me aboard the last uh, five years of the project, uh, I was inundated with paper. <laughs> uh, but, you know, by... The time we published that book, 2005, the internet had expanded so much that my subsequent books have been, I can do a lot of the research on the internet. Um, it, uh, <clears throat> but there are limitations still. So for the Carter bi biography, I still had to go to the presidential library. I spent about a year off and on going down, spending a total of five or six months solid. Um, going every day, eight hours a day, box by box, folder by folder. It's exhausting work. <laughs> Taking pictures with my iPhone this time, not a Xerox machine. And 
you can flick them to different folders, subject folders. And so it, they become much more accessible in, in a digital format. Um, I still had to do a lot of interviews, and that's important to be able to get a sense of the human person involved and, and also to find other sources. Um, so I found, you know, two other diaries that had never been read or published um, from Carter Aids. And I only found them because I went to interview them and they soon thereafter volunteered to show me their diary. Um, but it's a, uh, well, it's a, it's a great treasure hunt. You know, I, I love working in the archives. I love working with documents and occasionally doing the interview that leads to something else. And then the writing has also changed for me. When I wrote my first book, I'll confess, I, was so nervous and insecure that I had very detailed outlines, you know, Roman numeral one and A, B, and, and trying to synchronize all sorts of multiple sources for different issues. And I spent so much time outlining that it took me years to get to writing the book. And ever since then, I have to say, I have uh, written chronologically, but without an outline. Um, so I wrote the Carter book with no outline. I just would get up every morning and try to figure out what fun anecdote or interesting story I could tell that day in three or 400 words and get it down. And, uh, it's a, it's a lonely process, I have to say. <laughs> well, we are at the point of one last question and it really just follows on what you've been talking about. What was the most memorable moment you spent with Jimmy Carter and or Rosalind during the interviews and the time you spent with them for this biography? What what do you think of as a as a peak moment uh, with them? Well, uh, I have to say, you know, I socialized with them a, a little bit every summer at their annual summer retreats where they bring together veterans of the Carter administration. And they're all... Uh, Amazingly, they're all still friends. Um, but my my interviews with Carter were actually difficult. Uh, and they were difficult because he was still a busy man. He was still the man that he was when he was in the Oval Office. Uh, and he was still very punctual. He would allocate 45 minutes to an interview. <laughs> he would keep looking at his watch. And, uh, and you know, he's a very smart guy, and those bright blue eyes would look at you if you asked a familiar question, and he would, you could see that he was clearly bored. Um, so I, I'd have to work very hard to try to figure out how to get him to talk. And I have to say, he was not interested in telling me stories, uh, and he was really not interested in reviewing his the history of his presidency. He was interested in wiping out guinea worm disease in, in Africa. And that was his, that's where his heart was. Uh, he knew that he had to tolerate me as the biographer. <laughs> uh, and so he was politely doing so. But my best moment with him, uh, to answer your question, was actually in one of my first interviews, I pointed out to him that I couldn't find any 
many of the papers, memos, or letters of his longtime advisor and personal lawyer, Charlie Kerbo. And his bright blue eyes sort of lit up at that. And he says, well, uh, we got to find them because Charlie wrote me all the time. And three days later, he actually, uh, his aide contacted me, phoned me and said, we found them. There are five boxes in the attic of Charlie's widow. And uh, about six months later, I was given full access to all five boxes. And I quickly made many photocopies on my iPhone. And they proved to be sort of a crucial backbone of the narrative of the entire book. Because through Kerbo's memos and letters to, that, that have never been read before by anyone except Carter, um, you could see sort of the inner workings of Carter's own mind, how he's weighing things, how he's trying to walk the political minefield of being a Southern liberal in a still very heavily racist and segregated South and become governor and then run for the presidency. It's just, a, it's a stupendous story. Well, uh, Kai, I'm so sorry. We are running out of time. I would love to continue this conversation for a long time. Uh, and I just would like to say that I'm so happy that former President Carter did tolerate you as the biographer and that you have given us this wonderful portrait of his life and his time. Um, so let me just say thank you to Kai Bird, Pulitzer Prize winning historian, Executive Director and Distinguished Lecturer at the City University of New York, Leon Levy Center for Biography. Uh, please be mindful that uh, Kai Bird's new book, The Outlier, is uh, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter, is available online and at your local bookstore. A big thanks to our viewing audience. Uh, and I'm Gloria Duffy uh, from the Commonwealth Club. Now this Commonwealth Club program is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.